Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. I'm your co-host, uh, Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Jason Snow. Always. All five of them. We've both been here. Woohoo! It's a good streak. Yeah? Uh-huh. That's streak. pretty good. Pretty good. We're still yeah. lifting off. It's a very slow liftoff. Very, very One slow. One day we'll get into orbit. It would, uh, I think we'd be tipping over at this point. Yeah, it could but be. more on that later, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm. So- <laughs> so we're going to talk about the Martian this week, as uh, as promised. You and I have both have both seen it. Yeah, uh, I have to say it was it was kind of funny to go uh, watch a movie for a job. Like mm-hmm. part of my job now, I'm going to go see a movie. But um, it's like in school where you had to see a see a movie or or a play or something because of an assignment. It's a little like that. You yeah. would have never seen that movie otherwise because you're not interested in space at all. Mm, I think mm. I still would have seen it. Took, yeah. I, took my, I took my wife with me. Uh, she enjoyed it as well. Uh, she's not as into space as I am, but I think she really enjoyed it as a movie. But, um, but yeah, we'll, we'll get there because right. first we have some what we're calling pre-show stuff. Yeah. Because it's not follow-up and it's not the main it's topic It's like the either. pre-flight checklist to extend this oh. metaphor and make it like crash it into the ground. That's Which really you don't want to do for liftoff. You don't want to do that at all. You want the metaphors to fly. Fly free metaphors. All right. Pre-flight checklist is what it's called now. Yeah, I changed in the document, so it's official. It's official. Mm-hmm. So the like uh, the that. Apollo Project archive, yeah, really cool. So this is a uh, a project to document and share photographs taken by Apollo astronauts during during missions. So the astronauts all were armed with cameras, and they apparently shot a bunch of photos. There's like eighty five hundred photos in this thing. Um. Over over on Flickr, they've got them all uh, posted, and they're actually broken into mission, which I really like. So you can see, like, oh, what happened on Apollo fifteen? I can go look. Um, really pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's such a great idea that they, that they you know they scanned all of these images in and then made them available um, to the public, which is good because you know it's a public thing, so that makes sense. Um, uh, I was. I was also impressed with what fans have done because, you know, the, the, what NASA has done is posted the raw images, essentially, these, these film scans. But um, there's, a, there's a guy, and I actually don't know who it is, but we'll put uh, a couple of links in the show notes to his pages. Uh, yeah, he's, he's uh, uh, Jay Dreyer, but I, I actually don't know more about, about who he is. Um, and they're they're color corrected, so you know he he took them into a modern in Photoshop or something like that, a modern uh, image processing app, and color corrected them, and it makes such a difference. It's so it's so awesome to see them this way because um, what look like faded, weirdly tinted, you know, primitive. You're looking back in time kind of things, and you are looking back in time. So it you know it's just like how in a in a movie or a TV show when they do a flashback, they'll have it be in black and white. Like back then, things were in black and white. And the answer is no, <laughs> but it's shorthand for like it's in the past. Well, you know, you color correct these things, and suddenly it's like you're looking at it today. Like it's it's a modern. It, it, it the immediacy of it is is startling. Um, so I love that I love that this is the world we live in that people can can uh, not only uh, get access to these pictures but then can adjust them. Uh, and then somebody else, and we'll also put this in the show notes, went and took those images and made um, 
uh, iPhone wallpapers out of them, crop <laughs> ad- adjusted them and cropped them, um, and those are pretty amazing too. So uh, I love it. It's uh, it, it's great, and and just the immediacy of it. Like I said, the the fact that the blacks are black and it's not like kind of washed out old film, but it's just like. You know, you're you feel like you're there on the surface of the moon or looking out the window of uh, one of the Apollo spacecraft. Pretty amazing. Yeah, it's 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 real neat. I definitely um, have them all sitting on my Synology now. <laughs> There's <laughs> uh, a script floating around that you can uh, you can run and, and pull all these down. It's it's really great. I had a fun time a couple of nights ago just on my iPad flipping through these. And what I like about it is that they're just uh, there's no editorial to this right it's just it's just a data dump really and so you see like some guy thought this one thing was interesting so he took a picture of it you know they're not all the perfectly framed cover of time magazine photos they're sort of um the rough just as we're going we're taking pictures type approach and i I just find that really charming and uh you know it's it's stuff that you know the press people or the marketing people didn't um didn't approved to go out you know this all just because it's all open record is just yeah. it's just out there now it's so. like the literally it's the rolls of film yeah <laughs> it's even the the flicker sets are based on what which they say the magazine of of film so like there's apollo 16 magazine 117 f and 117 e and 115 d and so it's just like here, here, here are these magazines, and the film magazines are huge. So it's like 160 photos, uh, as many as that in a, in a magazine. So it's not quite like they're the old school. You may be even too young to remember this. I don't know. You know, you'd get to your 24th exposure, and then you'd be like, okay, I got to change the role. Oh um, yeah. And now, uh, you know, the, these they they you know astronauts don't want to do that. They're busy, so they've got these you know yeah. huge magazines with like a hundred and. 160, 180 pictures in them. But about changing a film roll in microgravity would be a pain. Yeah. <laughs> it's just going to go poorly. You yeah. got gloves on. It's just not going to go well. Um, it's really neat. You should go check it out. So there's a link in the show notes to the Flickr page. And then there's an accompanying uh, website, ApolloArchive.com, talking a little bit about the project. Um, and it's got a bunch of links to a bunch of Apollo books and movies and stuff. But you, you got to say, like, this had to have taken a ton of time. So, I mean, my hat, my hat off to the the men and women behind this project. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to talk about real quick, uh, I'm not sure you saw this, um, but there's, uh, as I'm sure you know, and, and maybe some listeners know, there is a, a project called uh, High Seas. It's, it's H-I-S-E-A-S. Um, and it is a simulation mission to uh to you know explore what it would be like living on mars it's it's actually in hawaii up on the side of a mountain and uh the reason i brought it up it's just, it's made the news a little bit they're doing um a uh high seas four uh their new their current mission uh is set to last a year i believe so it's it's uh it's a long time and basically it is um uh these people basically locked away <laughs> in this uh and the simulation to see, uh, you know, to study their, not only their psychology, but look at uh, science they could be doing and basically how how people deal with each other being locked in a tiny, uh, desolate place. So it's like, uh, it's, it's, it's not, is it like the Biodome? Is it not like the Biodome? Sorry, that's a Pauly Shore movie, isn't it? Biosphere 2, because the original Biosphere is the Earth. 
I made a Polly Shore reference. That's so Polly Shore made a movie. Okay, let me back up. Polly Shore kids. Polly Shore was a guy. I, I I can't call him an actor. I guess you'd say he was a comedian, and he was like the Ashton Kutcher of the '90s, is what I'm saying. And he made a movie called Biodome, which was a parody of the Biosphere Two project, which is this famous project in Arizona where a guy who was kind of like a mad inventor uh, created this uh, place that he said was going to be uh, like living in uh, its own biosphere, almost like a like a spacecraft test and uh and uh it didn't go well <laughs> and it were kind of it was kind of disastrous but it was called biosphere 2 which was very confusing because everybody thought there was previous biosphere project but he, he he meant the biosphere original to be the earth um the 90s were a funny time anyway um or like the it's also like it reminds me of the the russian studies that we've read about that where they would put people like in a basement yeah somewhere and say you know we're testing your isolation uh now stay here for a long time um trying to figure out about like long-term space flight but this is um i mean it's about it's about mars but it's also just about long-term space flight because that's that's where we would go with our first long-term space uh mission basically would be would be mars mm-hmm. nasa even does like uh bed rest studies so they actually did one this summer where you uh, basically spend months in a bed and they see what it does to your body and they pay you. And it sounds like it'd be really fun for about the first 10 hours. And then after that, it seems terrible. But, so um, I guess they do get to go outside. Uh, is, yeah, is, I think so. The... So if you look, uh, there, there's a there's a video on Tested.com. That, that's actually where I came across this. Um, and they're, they're interviewing some people and talking about the the Mars Dome, as it's called. And yeah, so they they can go they can go outside. They're, I don't think they're just inside a uh, a structure. I, I believe that they can't go outside. But yeah, well, I mean, I, I think they wear like little little outfits. And I mean, the, the whole idea is that outside there's nothing. Um, that's that's part of the deal here. Is that because they're on the on the volcano? Um, it's a it's a, a a decent Mars analog in that it's uh, the weather is extreme and it's uh, and nothing grows there. <laughs> Yep. Hawaii, not always a family vacation place. No, well, so so have you ever been to Hawaii? I have not. So one of the fascinating things, I mean, Hawaii is actually a huge player in uh, space science, which is kind of funny. Um, and I've been there a bunch of times because living right on the Pacific Ocean as I do, it's pretty accessible from here compared to most of the rest of the world. And um, on the top of uh, Mauna Kea, the giant shield volcano, there are... Um, Lots and lots of observatories. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the reason is because it's a relatively equatorial. It's, you know, it's north of the equator, but it's 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 a, a pretty good position. And it's in the middle of the ocean. So the light p- pollution is limited. Um, and it's on the big island of Hawaii. And it's above the uh, most of the moisture. So you get a very clear view from up there. And from the perspective of American scientists, it's in the United States, and it, and it offers all of this. But there's international teams. There's telescopes from um, from Japan and from Europe and from the U.S. that are that are up there, and it's way up there. So as you go up to it, um, 
it is you go through basically like all the climates. The Big Island of Hawaii kind of has all the climates. It's very close to having like in various parts of it a lot of these different climates that you'd find normally on a on a on a continent. Um, so as as you go up, you end up like going past the tree line, and then you know at some point you realize that although you left maybe Hilo in the morning and it was super hot and steamy, by the time you get up there and you probably have to stop part way up. We had to stop to acclimate, but when we got to the top. Um, you know, it's cold <laughs> and dry and lifeless. It's and it's just barren up there because it's so far, it's so high up um, that it that it's uh, it, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing up there. So it's pretty cool. Um, and then, but the nice thing is, then you go back down, and then it's uh, it's it's warm and and tropical again. All the great climates. All all the great climates are. It's pretty cool. The, the um that's the tallest mountain from base to surface uh, or base to base to uh, a summit in the world. Um, but most of it's under underwater. But as a seamount, um, the the uh, Mauna Kea Shield volcano is, I believe, the tallest mountain. Uh, hmm, that's cool. Everest laughs at Everest doesn't count things under the water. They're like whatever. Mount Everest laughs. At so you. what we've learned is you like geography but not geology. Uh, exactly. Well, I could tell you about the composition of the Aa lava that uh, that that erupts from the <laughs> Kilauea volcano, which is on the side of Mauna Loa, which is also on the Big Island. It's the other big shield volcano. But this is not a volcano podcast. It's not. Maybe one day, but there, but but when there are, are observatories on top, like if you, um, I follow Mike Brown, the guy who styles himself as Pluto Killer because he discovered, uh, Eris and uh, Sedna and has been involved in discovering a lot of these deep uh, solar system objects, you know, uh, Kuiper Belt objects, um, that got that got Pluto demoted because of his discovery because he found another object about as big. Um, and he talks, his, his tweets all the time are about observations they're doing using, I believe, the Keck telescope, um, which is on, uh, on, uh, Mauna Kea. And they're doing like, like crazy stuff. Like you, you, every, we think about the Hubble being like the place to go for space images because it's a f- orbiting uh, telescope. That's awesome. But, um, but the Keck, uh, which is a ground-based, you know, thing up at the top of this mountain. They're doing observations about like the atmosphere of a Titan, and you know, observations of Europa, and uh, pretty amazing stuff from from these ground-based telescopes. So it would be fun. Sometime we should have a um, we should have somebody telescope related on to talk about telescope technology because I the the one that I saw up at the top of Mauna Kea was the James Clerk Maxwell, which is a radio telescope. But um, they've also got some crazy optical telescopes up there, and they use like the lasers with the guide stars, where they're you know shooting lasers into the atmosphere in order to adapt to the uh, and 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 counteract the effects of the atmosphere. It's crazy stuff. So let's put that on the list. I, uh, it would be fun to talk telescopes sometime. I uh, might have a lead on that for us. So oh, neat. So we're gonna, we're going to get to the Martian, uh, but first, Jason, do you want to tell us about our friends at Wobbleworks? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Wobbleworks are a very nice group of people who make uh, an app called Luminos, and that Luminos is a space simulator. It works on the iPad, iPhone, and the Apple Watch, and it's got something for every astronomy enthusiast. Uh, you can hold your device up and identify your favorite sky objects. That's, I mean, like that's the number one thing you got to be able to do that to say, is that is that Jupiter? Yep, that's Jupiter. But uh, you can also tap and launch through space and visit those objects firsthand. Um, they recreate the solar system accurately. It's in 3D and it's sitting there right in the palm of your hand. Any astronomy feature you might imagine is probably included. There are detailed plans 
planet and moon maps, tens of thousands of asteroids and comets, millions of stars, the largest deep space image catalog on mobile, wireless telescope controls, much more. Um, you can even view live sky charts on your Apple Watch. Uh, I, I finally I finally tried the Apple Watch app. It's pretty cool. Um, it's the flat. So Luminos is the flagship app from Wobbleworks. This is a family business. It's John and Brian. They've got more than 50 years of hardware and software experience between them. Uh, small startups, giant companies like Apple, Microsoft, and Oracle. They've been developing Luminos for more than 10 years. It's been on the App Store for almost five. And in all that time, it's one price. You buy it and that's it. No paid upgrades, no in-app purchases, five years of providing free feature updates. So Wobbleworks would like to point out that in The Martian which we're about to talk about, Mark Watney's travels take him to many locations on Mars, uh, including his habitat, which is in the plane known as Acidalia Planitia, and his rocket, which is in Schiaparelli Crater. The Luminos app features these and more than 15,000 other official planetary and moon surface features that you can orbit or land on. And in the upcoming version 9, you'll also be able to track the sun's analemma path over time from the surface of Mars, just in case you're planning to stick around on the surface of Mars like Mark Watney in The Martian. Anyway, thanks to Luminos for sponsoring uh, Liftoff. Uh, Check them out at wobbleworks.com. So it's time. It's time to talk about our friend Mark Watney and his uh, extremely unfortunate series of events. Yeah, so uh, I guess we should warn people. Uh, I don't know if we have a spoiler horn here, but on the incomparable, I, I, I fire off the spoiler horn when we get to a thing that if, you, if we're going to talk about what happens in the movie. So if you haven't seen the movie and you're really spoiler averse, you might want to wait and go see The Martian and then listen to the rest of it. I don't know if you, we want to talk about it in general before we blow the uh, blow whatever the equivalent of the spoiler horn is. I think we're just gonna fire the uh, spoiler horn. All right, if you send it to me. <laughs> uh, yeah. So 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 before we do that, I think I think generally, uh, I think it's safe to talk about the idea of a, of a book versus a movie, and and you know, sure. a lot of people know the backstory of The Martian, where uh, it basically started as a series of blog posts by Andy Ware, and then it became a book because people wanted to read it on their Kindle, basically. So he just like compiled it into a uh, an Amazon ebook, and then it got picked up and was a New York Times bestseller, and has really just exploded onto the scene. But I think the book has, because it was a series of blog posts, it has tendencies to have a lot of um, repetition and a lot of sort of uh, cliffhangers that the the movie sort of irons over a little bit mm. and we can get to specifics later, but I think overall they did a really good job of turning what was, if you could, if you could have a fault with the Martian, the book, a little technical, a little dry at times, yeah. turning that into a movie that, like I said, my wife was next to me just on the edge of her seat the entire time. Um, I think, I think they did a really good job adapting it to the screen. Yeah, the the it is a good adaptation. Um, I asked on Twitter for people to send uh, in questions about it that they wanted us to talk about, and I did get a couple that were about specifically about adaptations. Why'd they leave this out? Why'd they leave this out? And you know, when you adapt anything for another medium, it's going to be uh, you're going to have to change it because it's not the same. It's a different medium, and in this case, you're taking a book that would take somebody many hours to read, and you're telling a story in two. In this case, it's two and a half hours, but um, you've got to you've got to streamline it you've got to leave things out and the, and there's things in the book that are um obstacles that he has to overcome that are not very visual 
and they took some of that out. And we can we can talk about that more as we go. But um, I I, I kind of understood why they did it the way they did because some some of the things just you know they're very exciting in the book and in a book you know you want to as a writer you want to have them have those cliffhangers at the end of the chapters because you want people to keep reading the book. Whereas movies don't really have to do that. I mean, they have to be interesting enough that you don't walk out of them, but <laughs> they, they pretty much figure they've got you for the, for the running time. And they want to tell a good, a, a single good story over that, uh, over that. And, and, you know, books don't, don't usually work that way. A lot of times, you know, the book, the book always wants you to keep turning the pages and not set it down and, uh, you know, not go to sleep, even though you should go to sleep now because it's late. Just, oh, just one more chapter. And uh, and the Martian book is uh, so much that. It is very good at doing that. And uh, for for the movie, you know, it's still episodic. There are different things that happens, but they smooth it out a little bit, I think. Yeah, well, and like I said, being a series of blog posts, you want people to come back to your website <laughs> to read the next installment. So that's that's true. When he was we, when he was writing it on on his website, I suppose it was almost um, Dickensian, right? You know, the 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 reason Charles Dickens's books are are that structure is because they were serials published in newspapers, and mm-hmm. so you know every it's got short chapters with big cliffhangers. Every you know every chapter is like that because you had to buy the paper the next day to read the next part. Right. Yeah. So so I like the script. I like the, the adaptation. I also really like all of the casting. I, I don't think there's a single um, misplaced actor or actress in this movie. I think I think it's just really well done. Um, I really I was a little concerned about Matt Damon at first, but uh, just because there's nobody who people want to find more than Matt Damon. Yeah, there's that joke going around, right? That he just he gets lost, and then we spend millions of dollars to go find yeah, him. Saving Private Ryan and Interstellar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he just sort of wanders off like a kid in, in a shopping mall, and then you have to go find him. Yeah, oh, Matt Damon again. All right, let's go find Matt Damon. No, you're right. It's a it's a really impressive cast. Like parts that would be very easy to have people you've never seen before are are almost entirely um, populated with people you've seen before, right? So yeah. it's like Kristen Wiig doesn't have to be the PR person, but it's Kristen Wiig. And, and uh, Kate Mara, as, as, as one of the astronauts, I was like, that's Kate Mara. And Sean Bean is in it and there, is present in the room when there's a Lord of the Rings joke made, uh, which was hilarious. Um, uh, it's, just a, it's just a great list of people. Um, I would also say uh, it's interesting because... The mission director uh, Kapoor in the book is Indian, and in the movie it's uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor, and it it turns out that they had actually cast an Indian actor to play that part, and he uh, got a big Bollywood movie. I, I maybe they the shooting was delayed or something, and there was a schedule conflict, and he had to drop out at the last minute. And so they they had to quickly find another actor. And I, I will say, emergency casting, uh, Chiwetelogia for not bad for a late a late pickup. But they did sort of have to rewrite that part. So he's you know his uh, father was uh, he says my mother is a Baptist and my father is Hin- is Hindu I think yeah um, and that's <laughs> a line to explain why he's he's named Kapoor um, even though he's uh, a black guy yeah <laughs> but uh, but boy. Chiwetel Ejiofor is great. So, you know, they went from strength to strength there, I think. Agreed. I mean, I think, uh, to, to back up to, to Damon for a second, I mean... Yeah, yeah. Uh, you we know... Still, uh, sorry, I, we, were, we, were, we lost him. We had to go find yeah, him. But, so, yeah, we found him. He's here. 
He's here in the show notes. I was I was a little worried. I mean, reading the the book, I mean, Watney goes through such a roller coaster of emotion, right? From I mean, sometimes very quickly from, you know, being uh distraught to being, you know, excited or hopeful. And of course he's sort of also like underneath it all. He's sort of a frat boy at times. And I'm really glad they played that down in the yeah. movie. I mean, there's some like jokes and stuff in the book that aren't super great. But um No, he he's he's a yeah, it's a it's it's a good performance. Mark Watney is you, you're rooting for him, but he is very clearly a uh, uh, a nerd, or at least as nerdy as a movie star is going to be mm-hmm. in a, as the lead who's on screen for most of the movie. But still, you get that sense that that he's he's a nerd, and uh, it, it's it, and and like super optimistic too. He's just like, all right, problem to solve, and he has those moments of darkness, but he's got a lot of. Uh, of kind of fun optimism, which in the in the book is there too, right? the The book is is largely told by these journals, which they sort of turn into just video. Um, mm-hmm. Him talking into a camera for a lot of the uh, of the movie, because how else can you get into what he's thinking if he's alone? Um, and in those journals in the book, you know, it's all silly and wacky, and you get the sense that he's trying to keep his own spirits up. and um, And uh, I'm glad that the movie maintained that tone. Uh, agreed. I mean, in in the book, it's just so much exposition, and and in film, you can just show it, right? So there are things in the in the book that they, uh, or that Watney is explaining to his journal, where in the film we can just go see him do it, and we understand it that way, right? And so I think that's another going back to the adaptation, doing a good job, and I think Damon pulls it off. I think that he pulls off that those emotions, and there there's there's moments where he's he is just staring off and you, I mean, you feel like he's actually thinking and trying to solve this. I was, I was convinced almost the entire time that, um, that he was the right choice. So hats off to the, uh, the casting director. Yeah, absolutely. So should we, uh, should we spoil some things? Yeah, let's spoil some things. Here goes the spoiler horn. If you haven't uh, watched the Martian yet, uh, and you don't want to be spoiled at all, then pause the podcast here and go watch it. It's good. So a lot of we got a lot of questions about um, things that they removed or changed from yeah. the from the book. Some specifics. Um, and the first one is, and I didn't even realize it until a couple people tweeted about it that the day that the um, storm takes place is different. <laughs> I think it's yeah. Soul eighteen uh, in the in the movie and Soul six in the book and. I haven't seen anything about why that was different. Um, my only thought is is that it's different to sort of build, give them another layer of like they've the crew is really has been spending time together and has yes they've been in space for a long time right like what's twelve more days, but for eighteen just feels like they're further into the mission that they they know more about Mars they know more about their environment. Um, it, I mean, like I said, it went right by me in the movie, and I didn't even realize it till people started talking about it on Twitter. But um, it is a small, a small tweak. I don't know. Did you catch it, or do you have any thoughts around I that? No, I, I read the book um, more than a year ago, and I should say that uh, we'll put it in the show notes. We did an episode of The Incomparable where we talked about the book, like last spring, that's, I think. That's why I read it. I mean, I listened to that episode, and, uh, or I saw that episode, read the description, and then bought the book. <laughs> well, nice. Um, so I don't, I don't know, uh, other, other than that I felt like it, 
maybe gave a little more sense that they had, uh, you know, that the the other people had been on the surface a little while and that it was a little more lived in. But uh, beyond that, I have no idea why they changed it. Maybe they just, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I That's my guess is that they wanted to leave a little bit more of a, a feeling like they'd been there a little while um, rather than that it was really at the at the very beginning of their of their journey that they they, you know, They'd been there for a couple of weeks, basically, and were busy doing all their things, and then they and and then they had to abort. Um, but I, I I don't know. It's interesting. Um, a lot a lot of uh, so something I, I mentioned before we fired off the spoiler horn is the um, is the one of the things that happens before you get to the very end and the last sort of climax of the book is there's this dust storm that's between another huge dust storm that's between him and uh Chaparelli crater. Um and in the in the movie it's just not there and he loses contact with with uh earth mm-hmm. in the book and I totally see why although it is poetic in a way that uh that uh his last obstacle to get to the rocket is another storm like the one that stranded him there in movie form you know most of the tension in that scene is they're watching him trying to hope he figures out what they've already figured out and then he figures it out and his solution is to drive a different direction for a while it would have been i think hard for that to be suspenseful and it seemed to me like an easy thing to pull out and by having him stay in conversation with them stay in communication with them um that made you know i think that made everything simpler and 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 in a movie i think having it be simpler and streamlined and once he gets in touch with them he stays in touch with them is uh was a good idea but that's like one example where i thought it's interesting to see the choices they made to drop stuff out of the uh out of the uh book yeah, and and the the storm when he's driving is uh is maybe the big biggest example because of the book. I mean, it's just it's just page after page of I'm gonna put uh he puts like solar panels one direction and then drives the other direction and puts more solar panels out and then measures the charge that they gain over a set amount of time so he can see uh which one has more sunlight so we can tell which way the 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 storm is moving, which is uh, again like a brilliant solution to a problem, but maybe not the best thing to put in a movie. Um, but we should talk about the storm because that's, that's the yeah. kicker in the book and the movie. Um, we, we've got yeah. a, a, a link in the show notes to uh, hitfix.com. It's a, uh, they have an interview with, uh, with Andy Ware and the, so in the, in the movie, and of course it's visual, right? So like this huge storm comes up, they have to abort they open the airlock and all get blown back. They, you know, the Mav is tipping over. And so he's firing the, the correction rockets, right. To like pull it back up. It's cra- It's a crazy intense scene. It's a very intense scene. And it's in like the first, like four minutes of the movie. But the question is like, could a storm of that magnitude even take place on Mars? Cause as, as we've talked about, Mars has very little atmosphere. It's very thin. And basically the answer is no. <laughs> no, uh, I, he said that if uh, a storm, even like a big storm on Mars, it wouldn't like blow a piece of paper away because the atmosphere is so thin. And and that's just, you know, he wanted to, to have a lot of fun working through scientific problems, but he needed he needed his astronaut to get stranded and decided that 
he had another scenario where they're doing a, an engine test and there's an explosion in the engine test and then they and he is they think he's dead and they have to leave um but uh he decided that he wanted it to be about you know this guy the classic kind of man versus nature story and that the storm was a way to do that even though it's not scientifically accurate it wouldn't work like that yeah and i'm i'm willing to to forgive that i mean uh there's a quote in this article uh talking about the that the martian is really a man versus nature story yeah and he wanted nature to get the first punch and uh, you know I, i'm willing to forgive it you know they they show it again in in late, there's a later scene where after the airlock explodes and the hab loses pressure, um, he puts it back together with a tarp and tape, which is very stressful. It stresses me out the whole rest of the movie. Oh yeah. Um, and there's, a, I think there's another storm and you can hear like the wind, like hitting against the plastic and stuff. And so they kind of come back to it a little bit, but I'm willing to forgive it because it, it, especially in the movie, it, it is really a convincing trigger to set all this off so right and you need to you need to understand why so that you don't hate the rest of the crew you need to understand why they had to go right and why they thought that i was thinking as i was watching it like this is really important to to the rest of the movie being successful that you believe that it was a horrible accident and that there was nothing more that the crew could do and they felt horrible about it but they tried everything they could and then they had to go, and that any reasonable person would assume that he was dead. You, you, you. If you don't do that right, the rest of the movie, you kind of, I think, lose connection with it because you don't believe the entire scenario here, which is that he's left behind, and they feel terrible about it. Um, because in the end, they're the ones who turn. Essentially, they don't turn the ship around, but they, you know, they increase speed and and slingshot around the Earth and uh, and go back out to uh, to to get to Mars before he runs out of food. Mm-hmm. And it adds to the tragedy of the of the situation for the crew. I mean, one thing I I really enjoyed in the movie was the just the obvious closeness of the crew, and and we can talk uh, about how that changes the ending of the movie a little bit. But uh, it, it it's good, right? And I think you're right. They they have to the the movie has to paint the story of like they are all going to die. <laughs> like it is a serious situation if they don't go and. Um, and the storm's intense. I mean, it's shot really well. I, I did not see it in 3D. I don't do 3D very well, but um, I avoid 3D. In in in, I mean, I saw it, and it was it's an overwhelming scene, and all of the effects I think are really well done in the movie. Mars looks great. You get you just get these you get these beautiful shots. And this is Ridley Scott, right? You get these beautiful shots of this planet, and um, it's all super convincing. And even the storm is is, is convincing that you know. There's a there's a scene where you, the camera's outside the hab and and you see Watney through a little window and there's dirt like swirling around like in the in the window frame and just that those little details make it yeah. feel like a real place and um uh, the, like the storm's really well done. Yeah, we should talk about I mean feeling like a real place. One of the one of the things that I think is very impressive about this movie and why I think in some ways it's more. Uh, I don't even know. It's it's different from a claustrophobic movie like Apollo 13 or Gravity is that, you know, there, he, he's not lost in space. We've talked about this before is, you know, everything's in space, but he's on Mars. So he's got gravity 
and they didn't bother to try to like show it that it's lighter gravity. It's like he's got gravity and uh, there's an outside and there are some really nice scenes where he's uh, there's a scene where he's sort of sitting outside looking at the mountains and he as he's walking around, you've got these, you know, these dunes. And we've talked before on Liftoff about how Mars is much more of a place now that we've had all these different uh, rovers there and we've taken all of these different pictures from space, but also on the ground. And you feel that in The Martian. The, the, that's one of the things I really like about it is that... Um, you know, he's going through geography. He, you know, he's Mars is Mars is his companion in this movie, really. I mean, that's the it's one of the major co-stars of this movie is is the um, the geography, the terrain around uh, around mm-hmm. where he's uh, where he's working. And then when he's driving his road trip through trips through um, the Martian landscape. And, and he interacts with it. You know, he goes and he digs out Pathfinder and he's he's moving the sand off the solar panels. And at one point he like spins the tires on the rover and, you know, dirt and sand come up. I mean, it, it is something that he interacts with. Right? It's not just a static backdrop. It is is an actual place where he is. Um, I think I think it's I think it's a good point. And I think that I think, too, that that some of those scenes really enforce that he is alone. Right. You have these super wide shots and Watney's just in the corner. Right, you have these overhead shots from the satellite perspective, and they're like, "Oh, where is he?" And she sort of scans the screen. He's like, "Oh, he's up there in this corner," and he's just a little, you know, couple of pixels across in this huge red landscape. And so they, I think, right, the movie uses Mars really effectively to to reinforce like there's nothing else out here, right? Like there's stuff that that you know we've put there, right? He goes and, and digs at Pathfinder, but past that, it's it's uh. It's just nothingness, as far as you can see. Another uh, another thing I wanted to mention is the the space uh, the space flight stuff. Um, and there's there's two different things I wanted to talk about. One of them is the ship itself, because I thought they did a fantastic job of. And whoever did the you know production design for this movie did a great job. That everything felt like. It felt futury in the sense that it this is a they're on Mars, so it's got to be tech that's a little bit ahead of where we are. But all, as we've talked about before a little bit, all space tech is actually old. You know, like Rachel Binks was telling us about how there's you know stuff designed in the you know launched in the mid '90s, designed in the early '90s, and stuff launched in the '70s. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of like our our tech. But now it's the space version of our tech today, so it's obviously in the future. But it felt – I really like the production design in general, and the HAB definitely felt like, a, you know, it's like a flat pack space HAB kind of thing that, you know, that, that NASA would send ahead for something like this. But the, the, the Hermes – production design especially is spectacular and the way that it's shot that they've got a rotating section so that they can provide some some gravity essentially for for everybody um and then they've got the sections that don't that are that are in uh in uh zero gravity and you see the mechanics of that you actually see the crew um in the zero G part and then kind of like duck down the corridor into the mm-hmm. spinning part and when they're in the spinning part they've got gravity and you see um the you see the stars moving outside the window as they're rotating and i just thought they did a really great job of visualizing what a spaceship like that would look like yeah i I agree really my my only problem with the uh with the spaceship sequences is that 
it's the roomiest, like uh, yeah. cleanest it's, spaceship. I, I mean, you look big. at pictures of, of a space station, and it is just. It's like a dorm room. Like everything is packed everywhere because yeah. it has to be. Now, granted, you could say, "Well, this is twenty years in the future," and but <laughs> this, physics is still going to be the same, though. But it's like you're flying around. You're in a floating Apple store, and I'm not really sure that's that's quite how and it will be. All, all in the future, everything is an Apple store. That's I mean, the, I'm okay with that. It, it's uh, and and yeah, I mean, you could argue uh, space. It's funny. Space is not the issue. It's um, it's it, it's volume in a certain extent. I, I'm just the way I'm trying to express this is having open space in a spacecraft is not the problem. The problem is that if that spacecraft is huge, then you, you know, have basically to you it. need to, you, unless you assemble it in space, right? Mm-hmm. You've got to, the weight matters, the the mass of it matters, um, and what you're launching it in matters. But you could theoretically build a very you know, spacious spaceship. Ooh, that's fun to say. Um, if you assembled it in space, because the you know the it's empty space. The 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 empty space in the in the crew cabin is not the problem. Um, but but putting it together is the issue. In the book, I think there's an implication that the Hermes is uh, assembled in space and stays in space, which is not the really the case in the uh, in the. Uh, in the movie, I think again for simplification reasons. But that was my recollection: is that the reason that they're Ares three, but that there's the Hermes, is the Hermes is basically like it stays in space it's a bus. And, go, and goes back and forth between Earth and Mars, and they and they they supply it and they fuel it and they crew it. But otherwise, and I I might be wrong about this, but I think it's supposed to actually do crew transfer um, on the fly that the the idea is that they do crew transfer they don't slow it down or they slow it down only a limited amount and they do a crew transfer and then the new crew goes right back around mm-hmm. um something like that i believe is what's in the book it's been like i said it's been a year and a half it's like it's like jumping onto one of those trams at disney world while it's moving yeah exactly or a hobo catching the back of a freight train <laughs> uh, but but it's it's uh but it, you know, once you once you're assembling ships in space, they could be a lot more spacious. And th- this is a huge ship, so it w- there's no way it could have launched from Earth, right? So it would have had to be assembled in space in pieces. And so maybe it makes a little more sense that it's spacious like that. It certainly makes it easier to uh, to to look at. It's it, it's pretty to see them in that way. But anyway, I loved it. I love that they got the rotation in there. It, it, it is, that's the part of this movie that's like, what would it be like if we really did a mission to Mars? What would the ship be like? What would the, you know, how would we, how would we get them there over, uh, over time? We see them on treadmills. Um, you know, there's, there's, it's in the background. Cause this is not a story about the people on the, on the ship so much. Um, but still it's there in the background of like, how would we, how would we go there? And I, I do think it sparks everybody's imagination. Uh, as they go um and and you know the, my other point about this was that which is that i think this is you know i think in the book there's this idea that that uh the the ship keeps going back and forth between earth and mars and here it's sort of like i think the implication is that it doesn't but they they kind of don't talk about it um so uh you know they, they it's not the point so they just don't they just don't get into that part of it Whereas Andy Weir was happy to get into it sure. because that's what that book's all about is uh, all the details. He did the math. He did the math and he wants to show you the math. 
just like uh, the Donald Glover character in in the in the film, yeah, who is the who is the crazed uh, orbital? What is he? Orbital dynamics or whatever it is. Yeah, he yeah. He, he and he fly. Yeah, yeah, a, a funny character. I a little exaggerated, but you know there that I, there are people in the technology industry as well as the science industry who are kind of like that, kind of wide eyed and brilliant, but um, lacking in you know it's the it's that it's the absent minded professor kind of kind of thing he's, right yeah you know, he's got a bathrobe and but he's a genius so you let let it go that he's in wearing a bathrobe yeah. or whatever he goes up to jeff daniels character who um is in charge of nasa right he's the he's yeah. the, uh, the administrator and like uh, what's your name again he's like huh. terry he's like hey terry hold this you know like <laughs> that just cracked me up that that whole sequence of yeah yeah like yeah, you yeah, he doesn't, here, he you doesn't have any here. idea who the the head of nasa is yeah um no, I, I do like the the industrial design in the film and the I mean, the Hermes is just beautiful. But even even like the Mav and the Rover and all of it is really um, really again maybe not as utilitarian as it may be in real life, but really well designed and um, and you know a nice look at it. and I like it even in the Hab. You know, there's these different rooms and they're all a little bit different, and you can kind of get the sense that. It's been lived in, which I think is maybe one reason that six days versus 18 days, like he goes to someone's desk at right. some point and there's just like papers and like sticky notes everywhere. I'm like, you've been there longer than six days to, unless you're just right. super messy. So I think it's, and, it has uh, that sort of nice, um, lived in feel mm-hmm. when appropriate, but you know, other times just is really like just nice scenes, uh, to look at as, as Watney's walking around doing stuff. Yeah, and you know you, everything's like labeled and packaged. So there's all the prepackaged stuff, and they've got, you know, carryalls and trays and things like. I mean, I, I you get that it, it's all happening in the background. But I was very excited to see, you know, the the attention to detail, detail of like, yes, of course, there'd be little tubs. Inside the tubs would be smaller tubs, yeah. you know, with with little packets in them. Each of the packets would be labeled, and and you you want that that environment. They don't again don't go into it, but that environment gives you a lot through just it implies the you know people brought their own digital data stores with them, and they've got they you know everybody's got a computer, and they've got uh, they've got their food, and they've got like a personal item, and the, the, it's very much you know, how you'd expect it to go and it's all planned because every ounce matters and all of that. And uh, and that's all there in the background, which is good because that ends up being his set of resources when he has to figure out how to survive. Um, somebody asked on Twitter about the, about the, um, they felt like the potato thing was uh, was awfully, awfully lucky, <laughs> which I thought, well, it it is in the it is in the book too, and I think that's that's part of the idea here is that it's lucky that a botanist is is the one who's stranded behind because he has maybe more skill than someone else would to figure out how to grow um, how to grow plants, and potatoes are a good example of that where. You know, he could get those potatoes and, and, and it's a question about, you know, would NASA's potatoes to Mars be able to be grown or would they have been, you know, boiled to death and prepackaged or whatever. But it was supposed to be like a Thanksgiving special or something like that. Um, but, you know, the point is to give Mark, Mark Watney problems to solve. And I think that's a fun problem to solve because the question is, how do you grow your own food on Mars if you're stranded there? And this is the best answer that Andy Weir could come up with, which is... Um, 
well, you know, potatoes will grow buds if you plant them and he can take Mars dirt and he can take everybody's solid waste and mix it all up and get some water using some chemical reactions, which I thought was a really nice, that was one of the nicer um, ways to tell in a dramatic way for, for a general audience to understand some of the chemistry where he almost blows himself up and then mm-hmm. he gets it to work. Uh, yeah, I, that was all, I, I thought that was really nice. And yeah, you can say, oh, well, isn't it lucky he had potatoes or you would die? And it's like, well, yeah, well, this isn't a story about a guy who starves to death on Mars. It's a story about a guy who solves problems to not starve on Mars. Right. That's I mean, a much less exciting movie if he just, we watch him wither away and die. It's shorter, that's for sure. Sure. It still might be an hour, but. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, I mean, and that's part of this, of this story, right? That as smart and capable as, as Mark Watney is, there are elements to him surviving that are luck. I mean, that the, yeah. the, from the very beginning, that the antenna, you know, the way he gets he gets injured sort of seals itself off, so his suit doesn't lose all pressure. And right, I mean, there there are the universe does does help him out from time to time, but uh, it's coupled with his knowledge and his experience and his know how and and his ability to get things done. That like together is how you know that's how he survives. Not that. Um, it's it's all the roll of the dice. Right. Right. But the idea is to take, you know, use science, use use um rational thought, clear thought to take advantage, you know, take take stock of what you've got and then figure out can I survive or not. And early in the film, he's very much sort of like, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do this. And I, I think I haven't seen a lot of people talk about this, but there is a scene very early in the film where Matt Damon is standing in the hab. But he's very clearly standing, I think, in the airlock because it's got the round. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's the moment where he's and he doesn't say anything. And it's very clear that he's deciding whether he wants to just open the door and kill himself. And he decides Mm -hmm. to survive. And that's where that's where the movie you know, really kicks into gear is he decides he's going to find a way to survive, but he has to have that conversation. I feel he is having that conversation with himself, which is, is this the end? Am I doomed? And he says, no, I'm going to, I'm going to do everything I can to, to try and make it out of here. And, uh, and then he starts to work the problem. Like, you know, and that that's, this is, you know, a more fanciful, but uh, like Apollo 13 is the one I keep coming back to. It's one of my favorite movies. And it's, that one is, is, uh, is real. Although, you know, it's got some liberties that it takes with it, but it's really real. But it's the same spirit, which is, how do we figure this out? Having what I have in this limited space, how do I figure out how to survive? Right. Um, we're going to take our second break real quick and talk about our a new sponsor to lift off, Ooh. Ting. Ting is a mobile phone service that is here to save you money. Yes, seriously, Ting is a carrier whose primary goal is to help you save on what you pay for cell service. Ting believes that what you should be paying for should be fair. You should be paying for the service that you actually use. And with Ting, it's exactly what you get. Go to liftoff.ting.com and see how much you could be saving with Ting, and you'll get $25 off your first device or credit for Ting service. Ting is a U.S. mobile service with two nationwide networks, both CDMA and GSM. There are no contracts, no overage fees, and no need for those, quote, limited slash unlimited plans. It's all taken care of for you. Ting is the first provider to allow you to have multiple devices on different network types all under the same account. You have one CDMA phone, you have one GSM phone, have them on the same account. 80% of the phones made in the last two years can be brought over to Ting. So there's a strong chance that if you're listening to this show, 
you're going to have a phone that will work with no problem. And they have a tool on their website so you can check and make sure that your device is compatible. On average, a monthly bill on Ting is just $23 a month. All you do is pay for what you use. If you use less data, you pay less money. And you can easily keep track with what you're using with Ting's online account control panel. Right now, if you're stuck in a contract, Ting will give you 25% of your termination fee and credit if you switch over, up to $75 per device. And, and they're all about simplicity. You pay $6 a device per month for access to the network, and then again, you just pay for what's used. It's great for families. You can pull uh, your usage into one account for multiple devices. And uh, you know, if you don't believe you're going to be really saving that much money, head over to the website. You'll find a calculator, and you can see exactly how much money you'd be saving. Again, that's liftoff.ting.com. You can go check your device, see what phones they offer. You can look at your data usage, how much it would cost you. Uh, and if you're looking to upgrade, you should really go check them out. They can walk you through getting set up. They can port your phone number over if you need that. And once you're all set, you just start using your device. Keep up with your usage on your dashboard and pay for what you use. As a special offer for listeners of this show, you'll get 25 25- Dollars off selected devices or $25 of Ting credit by signing off at liftoff.ting.com. Thank you so much to Ting for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. So, uh, Jason, I want to talk a little bit about the um, kind of the last half of the film. I, I, I felt really my really my only serious critique of the film is that the, the back half feels a little a little rushed. So you have a lot of time setting up of how Mark Watney is going to survive, right? He, he plants potatoes, he blows himself up, which is a hilarious scene. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the theater that you were in, but people like gasped and jumped at that scene. Like, wow. um, I mean, it is sort of, <laughs> he blows himself up. What can you say? But, um, he gets to a point, he has the, the airlock fail on the hab, which they, they don't get to a ton of details to why that happened. The book, Watney, theorizes that he only ever used the one door and it got worn out around the the fabric and um, yeah in the in the book there's actually an annoying set of uh little chapters that basically explain that there was a minor production fault in this panel of fabric and it was there i think he's trying to do the you know like the, the from the smallest thing like the o-ring uh in in challenger or or the the uh, particular uh, structure on the wing in in uh, Columbia that there's a um, a little the smallest thing that would be be unobserved but it ends up having this huge consequence um, and in my opinion those sections in the book went on way too long agreed and were, and were too telegraphed about that obviously something bad was coming although it did at least give you the sense that something bad was going to happen. Uh, whereas in the movie, it's like that. This is all if there aren't any problems. Boom. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's that, just like that. That wasn't super awesome, but um, <laughs> yeah. So the the airlock blows. He yeah. you know tapes his helmet shut, and then basically he just moves into the rover. And he'd already discussed about how he's gonna keep the rover warm, um, by digging up the uh, radioactive material. Yeah, I love the little pirate flag they stuck on. I thought that was a nice touch. Mm-hmm. But uh. uh at, at this point, you know, he's already been talking with NASA. He has Pathfinder. They skip over the fact that in the book, Pathfinder fails due to voltage differences between the HAB and, and the, the craft. Um, they don't really go into him modifying the rover all that much. Although, again, it could be, you know, really slow on details, really kind of drawn out in a movie. Uh, they don't really talk about the water thing at all. But they, 
it's just all of a sudden he's driving and seven seven months later, right? They, which again, yep. I don't want to see seven months worth of Watney driving through Mars, right? Like, that doesn't need to be, uh, that doesn't need to be in the in the movie, but it did feel like sort of a sort of a jump, uh, and then you know, all of a sudden he's at he's at the map for Ares, for Ares four and. In a matter of moments, he has it stripped down. Which in, in the book, I think is I think he's there for a while, right before he can launch. It, it just I understand they had to compress the timeline. I just I, I just wonder if they compressed it a little too much. Yeah, I think the movie um, feels like when they've gotten to the point that they're at the end of the at the end of the story. Like once he's in communication with Earth and he solved these key sets of problems then all that's left to him is to launch himself into space and get over to the Hermes. And those are the final problems to solve. And in Weir's book there, you know, the dangers just continue. It's like, there's always another problem because of the structure of the novel, like you mentioned. Um, and they took some of that stuff out because I think they figured um, the most exciting problems were early on. And then, you know, the last big thing is the, is the shooting them into space. So, so they changed that. I, I want to mention also at the end the uh, the relationship between NASA and the Chinese Space Agency mm-hmm. is a little bit different. There's more politics in the book about like China. China has the ability to help, but there's more internal debate in in the Chinese Space Agency, and it's sort of reduced to one line in the uh, in the movie. And there's the implication in the book that, you know, they're wrangling for a spot on the next mission to Mars for one of their own astronauts. And they show that in the movie, <laughs> but it's not, you know, they don't go into any of that at all. Um, it, they, they they just kind of keep it super simple. Yeah. And, you know, of course, they, they China tries to, they're trying to launch a, basically a unmanned flight with uh, supplies and it goes terribly wrong. And that's when... Hermes crew decides to to return after after being sent a uh, a JPEG that's not really a JPEG with flight instructions, which is how right. I sent all my flight instructions as corrupt images. Well, it's just you know a secret. Uh, it's a secret thing. That's right. So they they so let's talk about the end. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on. He he gets to the Ares four. Uh, site he strips down the ship all that's pretty much says it is in the book you know it's like you gotta take this and this out oh by the way i can take the nose off and you're just gonna cover it with fabric because we need the weight down because the problem is right that the hermes can't slow down they can't enter mars orbit in a way that's helpful right they don't have enough propellant they they have to they have to the trajectory here is they've got some some maneuverability but the trajectory here is they're again going to use a gravity assist and they're going to they're going to go around mars and then go back to earth and so they can't stop and go into orbit and then leave orbit again that's not they're it's not they don't have the fuel for that so they so he launches um and there's uh Again, there there's issues, right? Immediately they discover he's not going to be uh, moving fast enough. He's not going to be high enough. Uh, he's not going to be in a high enough orbit where they can right. intercept. And again, it's sort of this rapid fire problem solution, problem solution. Um, but but this time it's different, right? This time Watney is helpless yes. uh, until the very end. He's actually unconscious for a lot of this due to mm-hmm. the, the, the launch. And it's the Hermes crew now. And again, there's there's a delay which they take liberties with in the movie a little bit of the the twelve minute communication delay, but um yeah, I was going to mention that 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 uh, they never they never show it in a way that proves that they are getting it wrong, 
And and so I feel like the movie tries to play fair with the fact that there's a big communication delay, but it's giving you it's implying that these messages are just flying back and forth instantaneously when, in fact, we know that there's a long delay for for a round trip. Exactly. Uh, which I, I could forgive. Right. I mean, it's tedious to like. Exactly. And, and, well, and like I said, I never thought it was in our faces. I think I think they I was looking to see them completely mess it up. And I don't think they ever did, which means that they're just sort of leaving it to our imagination that, yes, probably nerds, uh, <laughs> there was a half an hour where Mark went outside and did something and then came back and responded. And, mm-hmm. you know, it just looks like they're having that communication in real right. time. Yeah, which is uh, I'm fine with. Yeah. So but I, I like the the role reversal at the end and, and you know, the Hermes crew, yeah. they decide to basically uh, seal off where they are on the ship and use the rest of the, the, the air and the pressure in the rest of the ship, uh, as a, as an air break more or less to basically yeah. blow, blow the nose out of the, out of the ship and then slow down that way. Um, which is intense. It's intense in the book, but it's intense in the movie as well. And, uh, that still doesn't solve it, right? They, they still have these, these issues of, you know, Wadney ends up cutting a little, uh, spot in the hand in his, in his suit and using it. He calls it the, you know, the Iron Man approach where he's flying, yeah. Uh, sort of flying, sort of out of control, flailing through space. But the the biggest change um, in, in the rescue is is Lewis, right? So Commander Lewis, who we didn't talk about much before, but you know she's uh, she's the one who is ultimately responsible for leaving him. She's the one who's ultimately responsible uh, for going back, even though they vote. I really like her character in the book. I really like her character in, in the movie. And in the movie, she's the one who goes out. Uh, at the end of the tether to to basically to pluck Watney from space. And one of the things I really respect about the the way that they wrote the movie is they, they kept the relationship between Watney and Lewis professional as it is in the book. Right? There's no um there's no hint of attraction between the two of them. There's no hint of anything like a personal relationship. And I like that. I like that it yep. stays you know, you're the commander and I'm on your crew and that's, I have great respect for you and I have great, um, yeah, deep, you know, uh, collaboration with you, but there's nothing remotely personal or, you know, there's no attraction, nothing sexual there at all. And I, I'm glad that they kept that in the, the way that it was in the book. Yep. I agree. And, uh, she, she, uh, she's got the, the guilt thing as the commander, like we, I ordered you to leave, but you know, so you were following orders, but I was the one who left him behind. So she's got, mm-hmm. that's her story arc essentially is that she's, she's looking for redemption and, and you're right. This is the inversion. They are helpless for this whole movie because they're just in the ship headed back to earth and there's nothing they can do. And they don't even know about it for a while. I mean, it's months before they tell them. And then, uh, and, and in the end, Matt Damon, uh, you know, Watney's gotta gotta be he's unconscious and he he's the one who's helpless and they finally can spring into ap- action and do something to save him because they want to get their their crewmate back and it's uh it's out of this sense of duty and out of some guilt from Lewis uh and uh they and they do it so it's a fun little thing and and then he he helps in the end with his little Iron Man thing. To, to push it over the edge, but they do huge amounts of stuff, including blowing things up, improvising a bomb and blowing up an airlock in order to, to make it all happen, which is a lot of fun. Yes, it's good. And, um, you know, they, they really meant, I, I, 
as much as the, as the movie is beautiful, I think I think this part is particularly beautiful. You have the shots of uh, from the Hermes perspective, looking down on Mars and looking at, at Watney in his basically what's just left of the capsule of the Mav. You have shots from his perspective, looking up at the ship. Um, lots of of beautiful shots here, and and again you have that sense of space where like this thing's over here and I'm down here and I've got to solve this. There's actual distance and actual depth to these. Uh, to these scenes and um and yeah i think it's i think it's nice i i, I do I, I don't know what do you think about the 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 where we all are now at the at the end of the film i mean it's not in the book right the book sort of i'm rescued right uh, as far as Yay. i remember there's, there's not this in, no in the, in the book um so what do you think about that i i don't know i mean how do you end how do you end this story i, I think you could have very easily ended it the scene that I didn't think was necessary was the um, Mark Watney teaches the astronaut class um, because I felt like you end on such a high with him being back on the Hermes and them heading home. And I feel like that would be a good place to end. And we get the scene where he's back on Earth, which, again, I just don't think it's necessary to see that he got back to Earth. We, we He's going to get back to Earth. And he's addressing this, it's supposedly like astronaut candidate or something, except it, it looks like uh, like some college campus. There's like people wearing hoodies. And I just, I, I thought like, there's no way that the astronaut training corps, even in this future world, is going to have, uh, it, it, yeah, I, I just figure like you're, you're, you're an astronaut candidate you're going to be like dressed seriously i know that's a weird thing nit- nitpick to do but it just seemed so random like it was an excuse for everybody to get their kids into the movie um it just seemed weird i, I feel like nasa is is going to be a much more kind of professional organization where they're going to hey i i'm a, I dress like a slob <laughs> um but uh, I would get dressed up for astronaut training school day one where Mark Watney's going to talk to us. And so I thought that was a weird scene. It felt weird. It felt like totally, I don't know, it felt weird to me. Everything about it seemed wrong. I liked the end credit bit where they roll the credits and show the people as the uh, the next mission is launching, as the the um, Ares, what, four is launching? Four. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was fine. I thought that, that, you know, end on the spaceship and then over the credits show sort of like it's a year later and this is what they're all doing. I just didn't need, you know, it's not like I hate that scene, but I thought it was kind of unnecessary and weird that um, I wouldn't, I I, I didn't need to see that scene with Mark Watney saying, hey, being an, let me tell you about being an astronaut and what's important about being an astronaut because I feel like it's, it was pretty on the nose of like what we saw in the movie. It's like, yes, yes, Mark Watney. We all saw what the movie was about. You don't need to tell us at the end, and uh, so yeah, I'm 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 down on I'm down on that part. I guess a little bit. What about you? No, I agree with you. I think that I, I understand why you do it in the in the movie. You kind of want to have something to wrap it all up. But the thing that really killed me about like Mark Watney as a teacher, uh, he's so. I mean, the joy is so evident when they they pull him in the airlock and take his helmet off, and he's like, "Oh, I haven't showered in a year," but. You, you you get that the next time you see him, he's on a bench. He's looking down a little plant. Yes, call back to the. He looks sad. Like I just got the sense. I don't. I don't know. And may, maybe it's just me reading into it. But like I just kind of got the like 
he's he's respecting me. The, the kids run by and they're like, you know, good morning, sir. Like, you have the sense that he's respected. He's grayed a little bit, you know, magically mm-hmm. your hair turns gray when you come back from Mars. Scientific fact. But I kind of got the sense of like, I've been through this and now I'm sort of empty somehow. I don't know if anyone else feels that way, but I, I agree with you. I didn't like it. I, I was surprised by it. I was like, oh, they pulled him in. That's, you know, roll credits. And like, oh, there's this whole other four minutes of this is what people are doing now. But, you know, it's fine. Um, I, It didn't kill the movie for me by any means, but I think it'd be a little stronger if they followed the book. I think so. That's a good movie. It is a good movie. I, I definitely recommend that everybody uh, go see it because even if you... I'd say that if you're a space fan, even if you don't like the movie for uh, entertainment purposes, which I think you will, but you know, not everybody likes everything. I think it's I think it's fun just to watch the vision of what this what a uh, a mission to Mars would be like. What what uh, uh, this uh, how this mission is set up? What's the equipment? What's the you know how do they get there? What's the hab like? Um, I think that's interesting just on its own. Plus, it's a very exciting and entertaining movie. So yeah, I recommend it. Me too. In theaters now, if you're listening to this, uh, if you didn't find this podcast a year after, well, then it's on video. So just in, in your in your own home or in theaters now, if it's the fall of 2015. Awesome. Which it is. Yeah. It's it's a lot of fun. It's um, it's a good balance of the nerdy and then it's it's just a good adventure story. I mean, uh, you know, I think, I think there yeah. were a lot of people I saw it with who aren't space nerds, but enjoyed it for what it was is as man versus nature in the 21st century. You know, it's, it's, as it's like Jack London novels are man versus nature. Right. And it's kind of like that it, it, it it's, and then it's going to appeal to everyone because it's a person facing adversity um, where just the state of the universe is trying to kill, kill Matt Damon in this. It's not, you know, there's no enemy. There's no evil villain somewhere. There's, you know, it's just, uh, this is how it is. He's, he's just trying to struggle against just the universe itself. And uh, that's that's a good story, like like Apollo thirteen, and uh, and I would say you know like Gravity as another example. This is this is one of those where it's space is space is dangerous enough that you don't need a a, a villain. You just need to try to survive. Exactly, and it does a good job of it. Cool. Well, I think that uh, wraps it up. I for think so. Lift off this week. Yeah. Oh, something uh, that we got feedback about, and that, and we actually used the word in this episode, so I'm going to mention it at the end. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, Emily uh, Lactawala from the uh, Planetary Society wrote a really nice blog post that we should link to, which is searching for an alternative word to unmanned. And 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 we did say that in this episode at one point and, and are trying not to say that, that, that there are crewed uh, missions. But what do you say about the ones that have no crew? Traditionally, they were they were called unmanned. It's, you know, gender neutral language would be better um, not to not to. Um, put too fine a point on it but you know when you use words like man and men i mean man versus nature is like that too but at least matt damon is a man so it's literally a man versus nature um it's good to be more inclusive and not tell uh uh young young girls and young women that uh this is men's work to be in space and uh it's a nice blog post and they come up with a a, a suggestion which is uncrewed which i actually think is pretty good crewless is a little weirder crewless or uncrewed um because they are not empty these missions that don't have people on them there's stuff there's just no crew 
So we will we will work on on that too because I I you know since we started doing this podcast, I very quickly realized that that was a, a language thing is that I didn't have a word other than unmanned to describe these missions. And I, that word makes me uncomfortable. I would like a better word than that. So we're, we're working on it. So that's Agreed. my little footnote at the end of the podcast. Thank you, Jason. If you want to find the links to today's episode, we talked about a couple interviews and uh, stuff, the pre-flight stuff. Uh, you can find those on our website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash five. Uh, you can talk to us on Twitter. The show is at liftoff podcast. Jason is Jay Snell and I am ISMH. Um, get in touch. If you got stuff you want us to talk about or questions or feedback, we'd love to hear it. Um, be super great to, to hear from you guys. Thank you so much for the questions that we got to answer today. So yeah. uh, some stuff that, you know, I didn't think about or, or you know, I uh, didn't realize it's good to get to have good to have feedback. Um, so yeah, I think that's it. I want to thank our sponsors, uh, Luminos by the fine folks at Wobworks and Ting. Uh, awesome new way to think about uh, carrier and cell phone service. Go check them out. And uh, Jason, I guess I will talk to you in a fortnight. In a fortnight, we will be back with another episode of Liftoff. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. We will see you in two weeks. Adios. Adios.